Chapter Two of The Warden. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Jessica Louise. The Warden by Anthony Trollope. Chapter Two: The Barchester Reformer. Mr. Harding has been now precentor of Barchester for ten years, and alas, the murmurs respecting the proceeds of Hiram's estate are again becoming audible. It is not that any one begrudges to Mr. Harding the income which he enjoys, and the comfortable place which so well becomes him, but such matters have begun to be talked of in various parts of England. Eager pushing politicians have asserted in the House of Commons, with very telling indignation, that the grasping priests of the Church of England are gorged with the wealth which the charity of former times has left for the solace of the aged, or the education of the young. The well-known case of the Hospital of St. Cross has even come before the law courts of the country, and the struggles of Mr. Whitson at Rochester have met with sympathy and support. Men are beginning to say that these things must be looked into. Mr. Harding, whose conscience in the matter is clear, and who has never felt that he had received a pound from Hiram's will to which he was not entitled, has naturally taken the part of the church in talking over these matters with his friend, the bishop, and his son-in-law, the archdeacon. The archdeacon, indeed, Dr. Grantly, has been somewhat loud in the matter. He is a personal friend of the dignitaries of the Rochester chapter, and has written letters in the public press on the subject of that turbulent Dr. Whitson, which his admirers think must well-nigh set the question at rest. It is also known at Oxford that he is the author of the pamphlet signed Sassuros on the subject of the Earl of Guildford and St. Cross, in which it is so clearly argued that the manners of the present times do not admit of a literal adhesion to the very words of the Founder's will, but that the interests of the Church for which the Founder was so deeply concerned are best consulted in enabling its bishops to reward those shining lights whose services have been most signally serviceable to Christianity. In answer to this, it is asserted that Henry de Blois, founder of St. Cross, was not greatly interested in the welfare of the Reformed Church, and that the masters of St. Cross, for many years past, cannot be called shining lights in the service of Christianity. It is, however, stoutly maintained, and no doubt felt, by all the archdeacon's friends, that his logic is conclusive, and has not, in fact, been answered. With such a tower of strength to back both his arguments and his conscience, it may be imagined that Mr. Harding has never felt any compunction as to receiving his quarterly sum of two hundred pounds. Indeed, the subject has never presented itself to his mind in that shape. He has talked not unfrequently, and heard very much about the wills of old founders, and the incomes arising from their estates, during the last year or two. He did even, at one moment, feel a doubt— since expelled by his son-in-law's logic, as to whether Lord Guildford was clearly entitled to receive so enormous an income as he does from the revenues of St. Cross. But that he himself was overpaid with his modest eight hundred pounds, he who, out of that, voluntarily gave up sixty-two pounds eleven shillings and fourpence a year to his twelve old neighbors, he who, for the money, does his precentor's work as no precentor has done it before, since Barchester Cathedral was built, such an idea has never sullied his quiet or disturbed his conscience. Nevertheless, 
Mr. Harding is becoming uneasy at the rumor which he knows to prevail in Barchester on the subject. He is aware that at any rate two of his old men have been heard to say that if everyone had his own, they might each have their hundred pounds a year and live like gentlemen instead of a beggarly one shilling and sixpence a day, and that they had slender cause to be thankful for a miserable dole of tuppence when Mr. Harding and Mr. Chadwick between them ran away with thousands of pounds which good old John Hiram never intended for the like of them. It is the ingratitude of this which stings Mr. Harding. One of this discontented pair, Abel Handy, was put into the hospital by himself. He had been a stonemason in Barchester, and had broken his thigh by a fall from a scaffolding, while employed about the cathedral, and Mr. Harding had given him the first vacancy in the hospital after the occurrence, although Dr. Grantly had been very anxious to put into it an insufferable clerk of his at Plumstead Episcopi, who had lost all his teeth, and whom the archdeacon hardly knew how to get rid of by other means. Dr. Grantly had not forgotten to remind Mr. Harding how well satisfied with his one and sixpence a day old Joe Mutters would have been, and how injudicious it was on the part of Mr. Harding to allow a radical from the town to get into the concern. Probably Dr. Grantly forgot, at the moment, that the charity was intended for broken-down journeymen of Barchester. There is living at Barchester a young man, a surgeon, named John Bold, and both Mr. Harding and Dr. Grantly are well aware that to him is owing the pestilent rebellious feeling which has shown itself in the hospital. Yes, and the renewal, too, of that disagreeable talk about Hiram's estates which is now again prevalent in Barchester. Nevertheless, Mr. Harding and Mr. Bold are acquainted with each other. We may say our friends, considering the great disparity in their years. Dr. Grantly, however, has a holy horror of the impious demagogue, as on one occasion he called Bold, when speaking of him to the precentor, and being a more prudent, far-seeing man than Mr. Harding, and possessed of a stronger head, he already perceives that this John Bold will work great trouble in Barchester. He considers that he is to be regarded as an enemy, and thinks that he should not be admitted into the camp on anything like friendly terms. As John Bold will occupy much of our attention, we must endeavor to explain who he is and why he takes the part of John Hiram's beadsman. John Bold is a young surgeon who passed many of his boyish years at Barchester. His father was a physician in the city of London, where he made a moderate fortune, which he invested in houses in that city. The Dragon of Wantley Inn and Posting House belonged to him, also four shops in the high street, and a moiety of the new row of genteel villas, so-called in the advertisements, built outside the town just beyond Hiram's hospital. To one of these Dr. Bold retired to spend the evening of his life and to die and here his son John spent his holidays, and afterwards his Christmas vacation, when he went from school to study surgery in the London hospitals. Just as John Bold was entitled to write himself surgeon and apothecary, old Dr. Bold died, leaving his Barchester property to his son, and a certain sum in the three percents to his daughter Mary, who is some four or five years older than her brother. John Bold determined to settle himself at Barchester and look after his own property, as well as the bones and bodies of such of his neighbors as would call upon him for assistance in their troubles. He therefore put up a large brass plate with John Bold, Surgeon, on it, 
to the great disgust of the nine practitioners who were already trying to get a living out of the bishop, dean, and canons, and began housekeeping with the aid of his sister. At this time he was not more than twenty-four years old, and though he has now been three years in Barchester, we have not heard that he has done much harm to the nine worthy practitioners. Indeed, their dread of him has died away, for in three years he has not taken three fees. Nevertheless, John Bold is a clever man, and would with practice be a clever surgeon, but he has got quite into another line of life. Having enough to live on, he has not been forced to work for bread. He has declined to subject himself to what he calls the drudgery of the profession, by which I believe he means the general work of a practicing surgeon, and has found other employment. He frequently binds up the bruises and sets the limbs of such of the poorer classes as profess his way of thinking, but this he does for love. Now, I will not say that the archdeacon is strictly correct in stigmatizing John Bold as a demagogue, for I hardly know how extreme must be a man's opinions before he can be justly so called. But Bold is a strong reformer. His passion is the reform of all abuses, state abuses, church abuses, corporation abuses, he has got himself elected a town councillor of Barchester, and has so worried three consecutive mayors that it became somewhat difficult to find a fourth. Abuses in medical practice, and general abuses in the world at large. Bold is thoroughly sincere in his patriotic endeavors to mend mankind, and there is something to be admired in the energy with which he devotes himself to remedying evil and stopping injustice but I fear that he is too much imbued with the idea that he has a special mission for reforming. It would be well if one so young had a little more diffidence himself, and more trust in the honest purposes of others. If he could be brought to believe that old customs need not necessarily be evil, and that changes may possibly be dangerous. But no, Bold has all the ardor and all the self-assurance of a Danton, and he hurls his anathemas against time-honored practices with the violence of a French Jacobin. No wonder that Dr. Grantly should regard Bold as a firebrand, falling as he has done almost in the center of the quiet, ancient close of Barchester Cathedral. Dr. Grantly would have him avoided as the plague, but the old doctor and Mr. Harding were fast friends. Young Johnny Bold used to play as a boy on Mr. Harding's lawn. He has many a time won the precentor's heart by listening with rapt attention to his sacred strains, and since those days, to tell the truth at once, he has nearly won another heart within the same walls. Eleanor Harding has not plighted her troth to John Bold, nor has she perhaps owned to herself how dear to her the young reformer is, but she cannot endure that anyone should speak harshly of him. She does not dare to defend him when her brother-in-law is so loud against him, for she, like her father, is somewhat afraid of Dr. Grantly, but she is beginning greatly to dislike the archdeacon. She persuades her father that it would be both unjust and injudicious to banish his young friend because of his politics. She cares little to go to houses where she will not meet him, and in fact she is in love. Nor is there any good reason why Eleanor Harding should not love John Bold. He has all those qualities which are likely to touch a girl's heart. He is brave, eager, and amusing, well-made and good-looking, young and enterprising. His character is in all respects good. He has sufficient income to support a wife. He is her father's friend, and above all he is in love with her. Then why should not Eleanor Harding be attached to John Bold? 
dr grantly who has as many eyes as argus and has long seen how the wind blows in that direction thinks there are various strong reasons why this should not be so he has not thought it wise as yet to speak to his father-in-law on the subject for he knows how foolishly indulgent is mr harding in everything that concerns his daughter but he has discussed the matter with his all-trusted helpmate within that sacred recess formed by the clerical bed-curtains at plumstead episcopi how much sweet solace how much valued counsel has our archdeacon received within that sainted enclosure tis there alone that he unbends and comes down from his high church pedestal to the level of a mortal man in the world dr grantly never lays aside that demeanour which so well becomes him he has all the dignity of an ancient saint with the sleekness of a modern bishop he is always the same he is always the archdeacon unlike homer he never nods even with his father-in-law even with the bishop and dean he maintains that sonorous tone and lofty deportment which strikes awe into the young hearts of barchester and absolutely cows the whole parish of plumstead episcopi tis only when he has exchanged that ever-new shovel hat for a tasselled nightcap and those shining black habiliments for his accustomed robe de nuit that dr grantly talks and looks and thinks like an ordinary man many of us have often thought how severe a trial of faith must this be to the wives of our great church dignitaries to us these men are personifications of st paul their very gait is a speaking sermon their clean and sombre apparel exacts from us faith and submission and the cardinal virtues seem to hover round their sacred hats a dean or archbishop in the garb of his order is sure of our reverence and a well-got-up bishop fills our very souls with awe but how can this feeling be perpetuated in the bosoms of those who see the bishops without their aprons and the archdeacons even in a lower state of dishabille do we not all know some reverend all but sacred personage before whom our tongue ceases to be loud and our step to be elastic but were we once to see him stretch himself beneath the bedclothes yawn widely and bury his face upon his pillow we could chatter before him as glibly as before a doctor or a lawyer for some such cause doubtless it arose that our archdeacon listened to the counsels of his wife though he considered himself entitled to give counsel to every other being whom he met my dear he said as he adjusted the copious folds of his nightcap there was that john bold at your father's again to-day i must say your father is very imprudent he is imprudent he always was replied mrs grantly speaking from under the comfortable bedclothes there's nothing new in that no my dear there's nothing new i know that but at the present juncture of affairs such imprudence is is i'll tell you what my dear if he does not take care what he's about john bold will be off with eleanor i think he will whether papa takes care or no and why not why not almost screamed the archdeacon giving so rough a pull at his nightcap as almost to bring it over his nose why not that pestilent interfering upstart john bold the most vulgar young person i ever met do you know that he is meddling with your father's affairs in a most uncalled for most and being at a loss for an epithet sufficiently injurious he finished his expressions of horror by muttering good heavens 
in a manner that had been found very efficacious in clerical meetings of the diocese. He must for the moment have forgotten where he was. As to his vulgarity, Archdeacon, Mrs. Grantly had never assumed a more familiar term than this in addressing her husband, I don't agree with you. Not that I like Mr. Bold. He's a great deal too conceited for me, but then Eleanor does, and it would be the best thing in the world for Papa if they were to marry. Bold would never trouble himself about Hiram's hospital if he were Papa's son-in-law. And the lady turned herself round under the bedclothes in a manner to which the doctor was well accustomed, and which told him, as plainly as words, that as far as she was concerned, the subject was over for that night. "'Good heavens!' murmured the doctor again. He was evidently much put beside himself. Dr. Grantly is by no means a bad man. He is exactly the man which such an education as his was most likely to form, his intellect being sufficient for such a place in the world, but not sufficient to put him in advance of it. He performs with a rigid constancy such of the duties of a parish clergyman as are to his thinking above the sphere of his curate, but it is as an archdeacon that he shines. We believe as a general rule that either a bishop or his archdeacons have sinecures. Where a bishop works, archdeacons have but little to do, and vice versa. In the diocese of the Barchester, the archdeacon of Barchester does the work. In that capacity, he is diligent, authoritative, and, as his friends particularly boast, judicious. His great fault is an overbearing assurance of the virtues and claims of his order, and his great foible is an equally strong confidence in the dignity of his own manner and the eloquence of his own words. He is a moral man, believing the precepts which he teaches, and believing also that he acts up to them, though we cannot say that he would give his coat to the man who took his cloak, or that he is prepared to forgive his brother even seven times. He is severe enough in exacting his dues, considering that any laxity in this respect would endanger the security of the church, and could he have his way, he would consign to darkness and perdition not only every individual reformer, but every committee and every commission that would even dare to ask a question respecting the appropriation of church revenues. They are church revenues, the laity admit it. Surely the church is able to administer her own revenues. T'was thus, he was accustomed to argue, when the sacrilegious doings of Lord John Russell and others were discussed either at Barchester or at Oxford. It was no wonder that Dr. Grantly did not like John Bold, and that his wife's suggestion that he should become closely connected with such a man dismayed him. To give him his due, the archdeacon never wanted courage. He was quite willing to meet his enemy on any field and with any weapon. He had that idea in his own arguments that he felt sure of success, could he only be sure of a fair fight on the part of his adversary. He had no idea that John Bold could really prove that the income of the hospital was malappropriated. Why, then, should peace be sought for on such base terms? What? Bribe an unbelieving enemy of the church with the sister-in-law of one dignitary and the daughter of another? With a young lady whose connections with the diocese and the chapter of Barchester were so close as to give her an undeniable claim to a husband endowed with some of its sacred wealth? When Dr. Grantly talks of unbelieving enemies, he does not mean to imply want of belief in the doctrines of the church, but an equally dangerous scepticism as to its purity in money matters. 
Mrs. Grantley is not usually deaf to the claims of the high order to which she belongs. She and her husband rarely disagree as to the tone with which the church should be defended. How singular, then, that in such a case as this, she should be willing to succumb. The archdeacon again murmurs, Good heavens, as he lays himself beside her, but he does so in a voice audible only to himself, and he repeats it till sleep relieves him from deep thought. Mr. Harding himself has seen no reason why his daughter should not love John Bold. He has not been unobservant of her feelings, and perhaps his deepest regret at the part which he fears Bold is about to take regarding the hospital arises from the dread that he may be separated from his daughter, or that she may be separated from the man she loves. He has never spoken to Eleanor about her lover. He is the last man in the world to allude to such a subject unconsulted, even with his own daughter, and had he considered that he had ground to disapprove of Bold, he would have removed her, or forbidden him his house. But he saw no such ground. He would probably have preferred a second clerical son-in-law, for Mr. Harding also is attached to his order, and failing in that, he would at any rate have wished that so near a connection should have thought alike with him on church matters. He would not, however, reject the man his daughter loved, because he differed on such subjects with himself. Hitherto Bold had taken no steps in the matter in any way annoying to Mr. Harding personally. Some months since, after a severe battle which cost him not a little money, he gained a victory over a certain old turnpike woman in the neighborhood, of whose charges another old woman had complained to him. He got the Act of Parliament relating to the trust, found that his protégé had been wrongly taxed, rode through the gate himself paying the toll, then brought an action against the gatekeeper and proved that all people coming up a certain by-lane and going down a certain other by-lane were toll-free. The fame of his success spread widely abroad, and he began to be looked on as the upholder of the rights of the poor of Barchester. Not long after this success he heard from different quarters that Hiram's beadsmen were treated as paupers, whereas the property to which they were in effect heirs was very large and he was instigated by the lawyer whom he had employed in the case of the turnpike to call upon Mr. Chadwick for a statement as to the funds of the estate. Bold had often expressed his indignation at the malappropriation of church funds in general, in the hearing of his friend the precentor, but the conversation had never referred to anything at Barchester, and when Finney, the attorney, induced him to interfere with the affairs of the hospital, it was against Mr. Chadwick that his efforts were to be directed. Bold soon found that if he interfered with Mr. Chadwick as steward, he must also interfere with Mr. Harding as warden, and though he regretted the situation in which this would place him, he was not the man to flinch from his undertaking from personal motives. As soon as he had determined to take the matter in hand, he set about his work with his usual energy. He got a copy of John Hiram's will, of the wording of which he made himself perfectly master. He ascertained the extent of the property, and as nearly as he could the value of it, and made out a schedule of what he was informed was the present distribution of its income. Armed with these particulars, he called on Mr. Chadwick, having given that gentleman notice of his visit, and asked him for a statement of the income and expenditure of the hospital for the last twenty-five years. This was, of course, refused. Mr. Chadwick, alleging that he had no authority for making public the concerns of a property in managing which he was only a paid servant. 
"'And who is competent to give you that authority, Mr. Chadwick?' asked Bold. "'Only those who employ me, Mr. Bold,' said the steward. "'And who are those, Mr. Chadwick?' demanded Bold. Mr. Chadwick begged to say that if these inquiries were made merely out of curiosity, he must decline answering them. If Mr. Bold had any ulterior proceeding in view, perhaps it would be desirable that any necessary information should be sought for in a professional way by a professional man. Mr. Chadwick's attorneys were Messrs. Cox and Cummins of Lincoln's Inn. Mr. Bold took down the address of Cox and Cummins, remarked that the weather was cold for the time of year, and wished Mr. Chadwick good morning. Mr. Chadwick said it was cold for June, and bowed him out. He at once went to his lawyer, Finney. Now, Bold was not very fond of his attorney, but as he said, he merely wanted a man who knew the forms of law, and who would do what he was told for his money. He had no idea of putting himself in the hands of a lawyer. He wanted law from a lawyer as he did a coat from a tailor, because he could not make it so well himself, and thought Finney the fittest man in Barchester for his purpose. In one respect, at any rate, he was right. Finney was humility itself. Finney advertised an instant letter to Cox and Cummins, mindful of his six and eightpence. Slap at them at once, Mr. Bold. Demand categorically and explicitly a full statement of the affairs of the hospital. Suppose I receive Mr. Harding first, suggested Bold. Yes, yes, by all means, said the acquiescing Finney. Though perhaps, as Mr. Harding is no man of business, it may lead, lead to some little difficulties, but perhaps you're right, Mr. Bold. I don't think seeing Mr. Harding can do any harm. Finney saw from the expression of his client's face that he intended to have his own way. End of chapter 2. Recording by Jessica Louise, St. Paul, Minnesota.